0: Welcome to Staying at the Table. We are friends and community and part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best of relationship comes when we're willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently.
1: In this episode, we're talking about the deconstruction of the Bible and potentially adding into our discussion various books from the Apocryphal. How legitimate is it to use it as a part of our theology? I hope you enjoy.
0: Hi, so welcome back to Staying at the Table. And today we are continuing the conversation about deconstruction and what I label reconstruction And I recently have come across a new Bible called the New, or a new New Testament, a Bible for 21st century um, combining traditional and newly discovered texts. And it is kind of blowing me out of the water. And so I wanted to talk about it with my esteemed colleagues today. We have the Reverend James Beatty once again.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And we have Brian Chilcote once again. Hello. And of course, me, uh, Tracy Saletta. So I just discovered this Bible. It is blowing me away. And just to give you an overview of where this Bible comes from, hang on, is um, I'm going to read directly from it. And by the way, the Bible was edited with commentary by Hal Tossig. And there's a forward by John Dominic Crossan, which I'm going to also refer to in a minute. So it says this Over the past 160 years, more than 75 previously unknown first and second century documents from the Christ movements have come to light. These manuscripts have been scientifically verified to be almost certainly as old as the manuscripts of the traditional New Testament. And the titles alone pique one's curiosity, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Truth, the Prayer of the Apostle Paul, the Gospel of Thomas, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. These were around during the time of the canonization of the Bible and probably refuted. And what um, Dominic John Dominic Crossan talked about was to know fully and understand what is within the Bible— You also have to know what was outside of the Bible and what was rejected. Now, the way that this one came to be is in the same way that uh, they brought uh, a group of scholars together for the canonization of the Bible to vote on whether these books should or should not be in the Bible, this author brought... A group of about 19 leaders from all ethnicities, ages, scholarly ability. Um, he brought rabbis, authors, and bishops, different people together, 19 of them. They studied these, uh, these outside gospels, these outside writings, and then they all came together in this council and voted on which ones should be in or out. And they had a specific criteria, which I'm not going to go into. What is fascinating to me about these writings is that there is such a deeply feminist connotation within them. There is a easily, um, uh, I can't think of the word, transference between God as he and God as she. So as I'm reading the verses, as often as God is referred to as he, God is referred to as she. When you're reading the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, you see her authority as one of the disciples. And and as you're reading, um, you know, the thunder, perfect mind, which where they got that title, I have no idea. Um, you know, God is interchangeably, again, he and she. So it's almost like these were left out because of their feminist quality. It's like the divine feminine rests within these. So as we're coming off of the deconstruction, my question to the table, is this a legitimate read? Is this a legitimate, uh, can you preach from it? Can you bring it into the conversation? And Brian, specifically for you is, what does this do to the uncertainty of deconstruction?
2: Well, yeah, it it does introduce a lot of different voices that have long—they've been there. Um, they've been there. We've just never really seen them, or they've never been presented. But, uh, you know, it's always useful when you're doing—when you're dealing with the Bible, you're dealing with literature. And people who study literature often do something called comparative literature, which— They take a a work or a text and they compare it and contrast it to other ones that are either contemporary or the same thematically, and they study the differences and the similarities between the two to get a little better grasp on what the literature is trying to do, what the themes are, what was important to the authors, things like that. So when we talk about the Bible in terms of a, a set of texts, I think it's very valuable to have something to compare and contrast it to. We talk about the Apocrypha, which are also some books that didn't make it into the the uh, the Bible, although the Catholic tradition does include a lot of them. And they are very different than the ones where the books we're used to, but they have a lot of really interesting cultural references, uh, quotations from other works that were contemporary to the time. It just informs so much about our our take on how to understand what we do have in the scriptures, how they were made, what references they have. Uh, in fact, there's a couple places in uh, Jude, for example, that quotes from some pseudepigraphal writings. Um, so then, you know, you have to look at those things and say, hmm, if Jude quotes those, and this is, if you're a strict literalist, you know, and you say right. a quote from, uh, I forget what it is, But uh, if you see a quote from a pseudepigraphal writing in a text in the New Testament, and the New Testament is God's Word, should maybe that other text be considered something? You know, is there something interesting or holy about that that we need to think about? So, yeah, I think it's very valuable, and there's a lot of—it's another voice, like you said. You know, we talked about in the last podcast how the voices we hear tend to be— Restricted to a certain small uh, slice of our society.
1: Yeah, I like your point, Brian, regarding you know um, how what do these texts tell us and, and, and why? If we're, it is legitimate in my mind to preach from them. I'm just thinking about our culture right which gets so destabilized so quickly and puts <laughs> yeah. in in camps so rapidly uh it's it's amazing so my brain goes into it it highlights for us that there was a theme that the ori- original canon was trying to make sure it established and i can say they've done a phenomenal job of doing that and that these other texts, even though they may be valid, didn't fit the theme and so was left out. Why? I'm not assigning a, a, a nefarious uh, uh, intent to it. It is just, hey, I, I want to make sure people grab hold to this. This is what I think is most important. Let's get that out. But what about today when, we're, when our world is more complex? Now, how do we bring it in? Pastor Tracy, you were saying about uh, there is a feminine nature to some of the other writings. And that is that helps in building what started happening in Western culture in the, in the early 1900s about what role should women be able to play, allowed to play within church, which had been so dominated by males. Right When we see the Bible says, assuming that there were no other writings, if those writings were actually included, that argument would not have worked. And it helps us to understand that we're not going way off the reservation here. In Jesus's time, this is what was there. Someone else decided to edit that out for a theme they wanted to create. And now we're saying in today's society, that theme has problems. And we have legitimate end-time writings that said it's okay, it is actually supported to include this in our thinking. That's what immediately comes to my mind on those texts.
2: Yeah, just like there were a lot of—Judaism was not monolithic in those times either. There was lots of different— Parties and uh, sects right. and all that. I mean, you know, we know about a few of them, like Pharisees, Sadducees, and you know, Essenes. Essenes, yeah. There was, there's. We know about a few, but we know there are more too. And, and the same with the uh, Jewish Christianities that started to arise after, you know, the events of the early first century. Uh, you get into the first to the second century, there were a lot of different streams, emphases um uh themes you know believing one thing but not another as they tr- just tried to process what this was what happened here who is this jesus and how does he relate to yahweh uh for one thing how can how can we reconcile this mono, monotheistic understanding of yahweh and of god with now a person who has walked the earth claiming to be something like that you know, to show us God, um, and and again, this has been filtered through years and decades of trying to understand this and grappling with it, and we have a snapshot in the Gospels of the thought of the time, not necessarily at the same time as Jesus, but decades later, after they've kind of tried to process this and understand it a little bit better. Um, so there were a lot of different flavors of. Christianities, that for the most part, we would say, oh, that's just so bizarre, or that would never, I would never believe that. Um, and I think that's where the the table comes in. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're seated at a table now, um, and it's been pretty exclusive for a long time. Um, are we saying now as a church, you know, we want to open up our table a little bit more and even consider what different Christianities are out there. Are they welcome at our table? Can, can we, can we uh, be together and talk about this together and not have to adhere to a very narrow set of beliefs?
0: Well, I think that that's where Cornerstone has moved to in regards to centered set. Because when you're, you know, something you said was, we know, and then you kind of named things, we know the different Christianities. People don't know. You, we were we have not been taught that. You yeah, know, that's true. Good I point. I grew up in a very evangelical charismatic situation. I was not taught that there were other Christianities. I was taught this is it,
2: and it's always been that.
0: way. And it's always been this way. And I was not taught how to interpret. It wasn't until I went to seminary that I went, oh my lord, it's so much bigger you know i was not taught that there were different theologies or that they could possibly be right or mm-hmm. wrong or maybe we're all right and all wrong so the you know when i i just had a conversation this week with somebody and they were calling to express how wrong we were and and i said i look i'm willing to sit with you but i'm not willing to sit with you in a binary conversation where you're trying to tell me that i'm wrong if you want to have a conversation i will have it But we've been taught, no, there is a wrong and there's a right, and there isn't. And even, again, in this A New New Testament, um, John Dominic Crossan talks about, he said, there's a massive scholarly consensus based not externally on political correctness, but internally on linguistic differences that the three letters— 1 Timothy and Titus were written well over a half a century after Paul's death. They were post, pseudo, and even anti-Pauline compositions created in his name, but reacting flatly to his radical views on equality for all of those in the Christian community. And he says, but what caused that reaction to female teaching authority? So what he said is whether they entered as Jews or Gentiles, females or males, slaves or freeborns, but what caused that reaction to female teaching authority? The obvious answer is patriarchal dominance. Men did not want women to be equal to them, let alone to have authority over them. And it says that what frightens First Timothy's anonymous author so profoundly is the challenge to Ro- Roman normalcy represented by Christian celibacy, especially female celibates. And what he said is they were directly coming against the right for women to choose their lives despite patriarchal ascendancy. We're not taught that. We weren't taught that. We're taught that Paul wrote it and that we're going to concentrate on why women do not have authority over to teach as opposed to understanding this was a document that could possibly, I'm not even saying it is, it could possibly have been written later in uh, opposition to what Paul was writing. Trying to correct Paul. Right, right. We're not taught that.
2: Yeah, you mean Paul didn't write First and Second Timothy? Oh my goodness, what else is going to fall down? Right. But yeah, it's a it is a legitimate thing that scholars look at and and look for clues, linguistic clues, um, stylistic clues, other things that they find this trail of breadcrumbs that leads to a probability or a likelihood, and it's it is you know. As Crossan said, you know it's likely that it was written. They were written late, along with First and Second Peter. Uh, those are also disputed letters. They probably weren't really written by Peter, but by the Christian community sometime later, in order to answer a question or two that they had. Um, so yeah, that we aren't. You're right. We aren't taught that, and to understand that is also, I think, an imperative for us to keep the table open. For uh, folks that are either you know either one way or the other on that, uh, it, do you believe that Paul did write First Second Timothy? Um, that's okay. You know and there can be an argument made for that. Uh, let's look at what it says and let's talk about how it does contradict some of the other things that Paul said, and try to figure out where we are with that.
0: Right. And it for me it does not delegitimatize the Bible. As a inspired document, it adds to it, but it also allows me personally to open up to the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas. It allows me to broaden my own uh readings and it it it, it, it opens an expanse for me, yeah, James, what are you thinking well
1: I, I love Christians in this way. <laughs> We make it all about us. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. And what I mean by that is how we constructed uh, New Testament and our, the Bible that we consume is no different than any other religion in the world. It's not different than the Jewish community. It's not different than Muslim or Hindu. Or, there is a certain way of, construction, of constructing your sacred texts. It's all constructed the same way
2: but we think we're unique and special because of the way we do it right right yeah
1: And that uh, there's something silly about how others have done it mm-hmm. right in wrong oh wrong yeah right instead of no there are certain things that happen throughout history throughout time um, uh, that that's just how your written documents as it relates to re- religion are captured. We're focusing on Christianity today, but then you would also have to say that about the Old Testament, there was no difference in how right. these the documents were coming about for both Old Testament and New Testament. So if you throw out New Testament, then you throw out Old Testament and the Jewish community were like, "You guys are silly this It is amazing how little we give uh insight into how this document is created. And it also creates a a certain amount of of, uh, being a child for us as Christians, uh, a, a certain level of immaturity, of understanding that there could be an influence of culture and of people in the creation of your earthly religion. That is just a reality. And as we look at... Uh, Again, pulling it back to the the text that were both entered and and kept out, that's okay, because that's just how these documents come together. I wish that in Christianity we would bring in a concept that, that Jewish community does, and that's called Midrash. You're just open about the concept that, hey, in our thinking as humans, we have to add in and we, we put it into the context of our culture and in conversations with others, which makes it okay. I think in Christianity, the problem that we have is we want to take an instruction manual and then leave the conversation because now we don't need to talk to anyone else. We have it. And that is totally antithetical to how God wants us to operate, which is together. And the only way you understand this thing called religion and communicating with God is to gather community. That's all other religions seem to get it, but in the western Christianity which is very selfish, we want to go our own way.
0: So interesting because I was just reading about how it, exactly what you're saying, how individualized Christ, the western culture has made Christianity my personal relationship, me, I, exactly what you're saying, it was never meant to be that, never. It was always meant, you know, we are the body of Christ. It was always meant to be a communal uh, religion, a communal celebration together, including the interpretation of Scripture, including how how we come together and how we look at scripture and interpret that, but we turned it into a, you're right. It's selfish. It's, it's about each one of us individually.
1: That's all. Oh yeah. Well,
2: I was going to say there, there is a, when you think about community and being together, there's a cost to that. And one of the costs is predictability and stability, which I think, you know, there, there are vestiges of that in us as we've developed over time as homo sapiens. Uh, of wanting that, of craving that stability and predictability because it's about survival. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Western culture has taken that to an extreme in terms of making things simple, predictable, and stable and protecting that at all costs. So there's a psychological component going on there with uh, our attitude toward uh, the open table that we have to fight. And we can. I mean, we, we have brains that are actually equipped to overcome some of those instincts or habits that we've developed over millennia. Uh, And, you know, is that one role of the church to to help us do that? I think so. I think a community like Cornerstone can help develop a kind of, um, you know, people who are willing to pay the price to be together in a community, which means giving up some of my safe predictability in terms of how I think about the world.
1: You know, Brian, when you say that, I've said this before, what I like about being able to preach at Cornerstone is I'm allowed to see the word as it is and think of it and uh, mentally uh, walk around it anew and not, hey, this is the doctrine. This is what we've interpreted this to say. And so it still says exactly and key only this whatever that topic is, instead of stop, slow down. What else does it say? What am I leaving out? What questions have I not asked myself yet that it's now time to ask? Because the world around me, the experience going to the Rorick example, is demanding that this new question gets asked. That's what I, I, I like about bringing in the other pieces and thinking about how, um, how we in, uh, do our deconstruction. Deconstruction, sorry.
2: Yeah. Well, what are the, Tracy, what are some of the things you've taken from the uh, pseudepigrapha and the New New Testament? The Gospel of Thomas, I know, is one of your favorites. So, what what observations do you have from,
0: from well? How has that helped? I actually, what was in, I'm going to go to, to one that I really, really liked, and that was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, because in it, the, the disciples are all sitting around after Jesus, you know, rose, and they invite Mary into this conversation, and they say, you know things because of your relationship with God, that he has t- with relationship with Jesus, that he's told you that we now want to know. That makes sense. Right, Why wouldn't so, you do that? Right. So they go, so tell us these things. So then she starts to tell them, and then Peter gets offended, and then Peter calls her out and he knocks her down as a woman. But then um I think it's either Philip or Thomas then come alongside and 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 stand up for her and go stop. Don't what are you doing? Poor Peter. Right. So <laughs> he it, gets he always gets the- <laughs> Right, but it's so interesting that Peter gets intimidated that she would know something more than him and he and he grabs at the female thing. Mm. You're you're a mere woman, he tells her. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, Lord Jesus, hello, hello today, hello our culture, hello the quintessential, you know, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to go back to what I know, and I'm going to knock you down as a female. I don't know, knock you down as a person in brown skin. Knock, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we we default to the thing where we're going to attack somebody. So that was fascinating to me. Gospel of Thomas. Thomas goes between being brilliant and what the heck is he even saying? Like, like he's going along, and I'm reading the gospel, loving it, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he like makes a right hand turn into at the very end yeah. that I'm reading, and I'm like, what does that even mean? Right? But it it knocks it it knocks me off balance, right? So that it's you just go. Wow, what does this mean? Because I I have read the Bible, again, up through like the last, you know, not since the last five years, but I've read the gospel as I got to read every I dotted T crossed as the word, the idol of God. And so to read this and to go, what is it? What was he doing here? And what does it really mean? It just, again, it, it broadens it. Uh, the other side of it that I love was this, this thunder, perfect mind. And, um, it, that was found at Nag Hammadi with 51 other documents. And, you know, it's such a beautiful thing. And I just want to read one, one little part. And it said, I was sent out from power. I came to those pondering me and I was found among those seeking me. Look at me, all you who contemplate me. And then it goes on and it says, um, don't ignore me. Then it goes, I am the first and the last. I am she who is honored and she who is mocked. I am the whore and the holy woman. I am the wife and the virgin. I I am he, the mother and the daughter. I am the limbs of my mother. I am a sterile woman and she has many children. I am she whose wedding is extravagant and I didn't have a husband. And it goes on and on. And as I'm reading this, what that does for me as a woman is reading this beautiful identification that has been left out of God as female and of God as saying, I am with you as a woman and I esteem you as a woman. Whether you are a whore or whether you are, you know, getting married, Mm -hmm. I am you. It's so beautiful to me, it's so poignant. Yeah. yeah, I just, I, I it, it brings in a sight of God that is so powerful. And by the way, when I go back then into our canonized, in quotation marks, Bible, it brings breath into that then, that I go, let's bring this conversation into this document. Now what do we have?
1: I was just thinking, You we've been talking around what does this bring up in our mind and I always think of the person who would reject our line of thinking outright and how do they how, we, how do we deal with our concepts of, of, of our mixed mental exercise of saying look I want to know more not only if I memorize the Bible from beginning to end, what my type of thinking says you still don't know a tenth of what's going on. And why do I say that? Because you're not understanding the culture and the motivation of the writer, which is not in the writing. You have to look elsewhere.
0: Yeah, you got to go deeper.
1: You got to go deeper. So it's not that I'm denying the person. Say the person is a straight literalist, which no one is because there's so many different scriptures. If you're... We can go into that later, right? Yeah. But if you're living in modern Western society or even... I, I can't think of many places on the earth today. you're not living literally as the Bible has is, is, is organizing your life. That said, how are you then putting your boundaries of what is in and what is out? Ours is there are themes, there's different poet, there's poetry, there's laws, there are all these things. So we've mentally constructed how we consume the Bible and try our best to stay within those boundaries. They're just saying, hey, it is what it is, consuming all as is. And I'm going, that doesn't work. It doesn't. And you know it. So why are you selling someone on something you know is not true? I would love to have that conversation. Do they know? Like, like, do they know or, or do yeah, they? Because then if they say, I've read the whole Bible, and I'm like, okay, this is very interesting. Let's go Old Testament then, and then immediately the room gets nervous because they know is if you've read it, you know there's there doesn't make it sense. doesn't make yeah. sense the way they're trying to line it up. They're just hoping I haven't read, and I'm not going to push the question that I'm not going to rock the boat. They're relying on me being civil to protect the. The church overall, I remember one class I was in that it it talks about the role of leaders within church. Part of it is to teach the people. The other is to protect the establishment. Yes. Right. And they're relying on you not to disrupt the establishment to such an extent that I would throw all of the people into chaos. And I'm saying, I think the the people are mature enough now that I can attack even that. And that's what's going on.
0: Well, I would ask the question, are we actually developing people, training people, helping people to discover who God is if we don't bring these other ideas in? You know, am am I teaching a kindergarten class and not helping them to become critical thinkers on their own. I mean, yeah. I'm just, you know, that's part of being a centered set is looking out into the room at, and saying, you can do this. You can, you can deconstruct here. You can, you can add other ideas. You can be um, where we started with the conversation. When you go to deconstruction, it creates a, almost a fear, right? Cause it, it makes the ground wobbly. Well, we can make it through it. If God mm-hmm. is God, then we're able to do this, but yes. I do stay say that people do feel, and I'm going to say specifically from my leadership, a, a a lack of stability because of their own fears, right? Because I'm not going. This is the way it is. I'm going. Let's discover together what that is. Instead of which is, you know, you were talking about preaching, and and I love. I love the way that you preach because you bring other ideas in that are, to me, new and fresh mm-hmm. and filled with breath. Give me that as opposed to the old rhetoric mm-hmm. of what that scripture means. You know, give me that breath and, and that life. But it does create, a, a for some people, an instability. And I think, Brian, you kind of were talking about that.
2: Yeah, and, you know— It's how you grow. I mean, I think instability is essential to taking a a next step. So as long as we're at it, you know, might as well take a look at some of the other ancient documents or whatever we we can, even contemporary kinds of writing, to think how does that expand our vision, uh, our our understanding of reality. Uh, You know, we talk about truth, which is a very... We used to think that's a simple thing. You know, you you want to find truth, it's there in the Bible. You just read it and you get truth. Like putting a coin in the vending Slap. machine. Yeah. <clears throat> but truth is really a slippery fellow. You know, and we um we may be able to get closer to it at times and further away at others. Uh and in our pursuit of that, I think I think um we all pursue it at different uh, levels of intensity some are really interested in trying to find out answers and meaning others maybe not so much uh, but i think that our community at cornerstone is is here to help people try to figure out what's real for them um, can we get a little closer to truth and what does that mean does it have to mean the same thing to me as it does to you what's you know what's real when we get down to it we we re- i really can't say for you what reality Mike. is i can't understand how you perceive truth it's you know the scientific method has helped us tell a story about reality that really is very effective you know we can talk about physical effects and um you know material things in terms of science and get i think closer than we ever have before to what physical reality is like and describe it with mathematics and, you know, things like that. Um, but when it comes to the soul or the the qualia that we have in our minds as we experience things, science still isn't very close to understanding they, that. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of them say, well, it's coming. We'll discover what it means when the chemicals do this and the synapses do that. That results in a qualia that's on a quantum level, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know. And it may happen someday, but for now, you know, we, we really can't, say, uh, what's real for James. I can't say what's real for Tracy because you have your own internal filter for that and understanding of that. That's been informed by all kinds of things that I'm not privy to. I don't know. I don't know what your experiences have been. I don't know what you've learned or not learned, uh, about your reality. Um, you need to have permission to say, well, I think it's this and I can benefit from that because it adds to my reality.
0: Yeah, what I love about what you're saying, and I think we've all around this table had this experience, you know, none of us know what the other person is experiencing, but haven't we all had that moment when God breathed God's own breath of revelation into our soul mm-hmm. for one thing or another, and you went, ah, you know, we don't know, but that's, that's my big tricycle wheel of experience where— God knows, and and God can breathe that into us. I mean, I I think about even this, the new New Testament. It's such a breath of fresh air for me as I, you know, continue to lead and discover and open up and centered set once again has opened this door to we can uh, we can rest in the ambivalence of everybody's you know belief system and still all follow Jesus and still love Jesus. Yeah, we we have The ambiguity, that's what I meant, the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. We have
2: this obsession with protecting the truth. Right. And I think a lot of churches are about that. A lot of institutions are about that. Protecting their own truth. Does it really need to be protected? If it's true
0: and it's reality, we don't really need to protect it. It's going to be fine on its own. Right. I think of what Tony, my husband, always says, could God be bigger? So whenever we're talking, he goes, "Could God be bigger than what we think in our little minds?" So, well, we got to close it down again for another day. It has been wonderful talking with you all, James. Did you have a final thought? You look like you had a final thought.
1: No, no, I'm just enjoying the the different thoughts and different perspectives and how do we how we bring those together. I I would just be excited when we can bring, you know. I want to hear the conservative voice. Same, yeah. That w- that has a mind to discuss this in a scholastic way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because w- we are true when we say we don't think we know it all. So I, what does that do? That leaves room for them to add their piece of hey, let's structure that. Let's 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 bring that into the conversation. But it's a challenge back and forth, and then when something doesn't match, we don't just toss it over. That's what I've seen historically. That oh, that's not an important part of the scripture.
0: Like, right? Mm,
1: how do we come up with that? That's the discussion I want to have.
0: Yeah, we'll have to find someone. Yeah, bring them to the table. Yeah,
2: yeah let's get them to the table. Exactly. Be fun to do.
0: All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening again. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast channels and tell your friends. And don't forget about the blog. What's it called again, Brian? Pull Pull up a a chair. chair. Pull up a chair. It's so good. All right. God bless everybody. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Have a great day. Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saleta,
2: Matthew Kistler, and James Beatty, and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed email us at admin at gmail.com
1: we'd love hearing from you
2: and don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out and if you're feeling kind leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts find out more about staying at the table at cornerstone westchester.com